Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the first Royal Aeronautical Society historical webinar. Before I introduce our speaker for this afternoon, uh, I have a few points of housekeeping. The webinar today is being recorded and you will receive a YouTube link next week, which will enable you to access and share the recording free of charge. After the presentation, there will be a question and answer session. So please submit your questions via the um, questions function on your control panel during the presentation. And we'll try and cover as many of those as we can. Everyone attending will be in a listen-only mode, so if you want to or need to communicate with us, please do so via the questions function on the control panel and one of the organisers will respond. So our schedule is that Paul will speak for about 40 minutes, after which we have time for questions and the event is due to finish at about four o'clock. Our speaker this afternoon is Paul Beaver. He's a man of many parts, most of them working, a journalist, pilot, former army officer, trustee of the Barnes Wallace Foundation and the Museum of Army Flying, author of books on the Spitfire, the few and a forthcoming biography of Winkle Brown. And he's also my successor as chair of the Royal Aeronautical Society's historical group. Paul, you have control. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Hello, everybody. Great pleasure to be here. Um, I'm talking to you from my, my study um, in Hampshire, which is a good place to be because I'm only three miles from RAF Middle Wallop, which, of course, was a fighter station. It was a sector station during the Battle of Britain. And on the 10th of July 1940, it had only been in existence for about two months. So this is a a great place um, uh, in which to uh, to do this. So we're going to talk about um, what what we're euphemistically calling um, the uh, secrets of the Battle of Britain, or rather I am. I'm sure you're going to tell me that you know some of these secrets, but it's always good to go back over um, the myths and legends of the battle. Um, so let's let's get right into it and say, so when did the Battle of Britain actually start? Well, officially, it's the 10th of July. I've always felt that was probably the first day when um, the Royal Air Force managed to account for more aircraft than the Luftwaffe. But actually, it also co coincides with the increase of Luftwaffe uh, strikes against uh, channel shipping. So there is a, a legitimate reason for that. Um, recently, historians, and I'm one of them, have re-examined uh, the Battle of Britain and said this is a very arbitrary date surely we should be looking uh, at some alternatives so I've, I've started to do that and i'll share some of that sort of thinking with you because i think it sets the scene quite nicely um churchill said very famously what general vegan has called the battle of france is over and the battle of britain is about to begin um the battle of britain the term uh was actually first used on the 18th of june in the house of commons by um uh, by Churchill. So um, that was the first time. If you talked to any of the veterans, they would have told you they had no idea it was called the Battle of Britain. They had no idea that that's actually uh, what they were fighting. They just thought uh, they were 
part of, of another war, um, a, almost a continuation, many of them thought, of the First World War. So I'd like to give you an alternative um, for when the Battle of Britain could have started. So I think it's probably 1936, because it isn't when a war doesn't necessarily start when the first shooting starts. A battle doesn't necessarily start when the first shooting starts. I think we can go back to 1936. And I think that this is a really constructive way of looking at it, because this is when the national psyche and the government um, as a whole changed tack from that ridiculous situation in the early 30s that the bomber will always get through into a, an idea that actually there might just be a way of countering uh, the bombers. In 1936, Royal Air Force Fighter Command and, and the other commands stood up, and that was important. That was the change from the air defense of Great Britain, a hangover from the First World War. Also in 1936, uh, Dowding and his uh, chief staff officer, Keith Park, started to plan an integrated air defense system, which meant by the summer of 1940, the United Kingdom was the first country in the world to have an integrated uh, picture of what uh, the seas around it and the skies above it actually looked like. And this was not complex. It was just systematic. If you go to the wonderful uh, Bentley Priory, you can see some of that. If you go to Uxbridge, um, to the bunker there, you can see um, how it, it filtered down from Bentley Priory to Uxbridge, and from there it would have gone to the filter stations like where I'm here nearby Middle Wallop, um, just over in 10 Group from, uh, uh, from Park's 11 Group. He did a lot of, uh, Park did a lot of work um, uh, in practicing for um, the Battle of Britain at, at RAF North Holt. A team there have recently reconstructed um, the room they used to start planning in, in the late 1930s how they would defend London. Worth trying to make an appointment at RAF North Holt to go and look at that. I think it's an, a, an amazing uh, recreation down to the last detail, which includes the coat hooks are exactly period for 1940. So in my view, the Battle of Britain was being fought in terms of simulation and thought power um, for four years before it actually uh, the fighting started. And then, of course, you've also got um, the, the Battle of France. And 1937, if you like, the defense of the home base had already been considered. Operating in France was not there. One of the heroes, um, and I'm going to give you three heroes of the Battle of Britain now, and ones that are not necessarily secret, but they're not well known. Um, the Inskip report um, on Imperial Defence in 1937. Thomas Inskip was chosen by the cabinet because he didn't know anything about air power. They wanted a lawyer to go in and take a serious look at how we defend uh, the country and its interests. And his famous quote, air defense of the home base is the first priority, is actually something that resonates today uh, with the quick reaction alert aircraft at Coningsby uh, and at Lossiemouth, and I suppose that matter down in the Falklands as well. This is all about defending the home base. Uh, Inskip's report um, was instrumental in getting more money, and he had a very good relation with my next great hero, and this may surprise you. 
Neville Chamberlain in 1937, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, took a decision to fund the first 310 Spitfires by awarding Supermarine, a Vickers subsidiary, uh, with a contract um, to get the aircraft into production. It had flown the year before, on the 5th of March 1936, but it had yet to be ordered um, by the Air Ministry. Churchill uh, was not at this time uh, in, uh, in anyone's imagination as being the next Prime Minister, so we can't thank Churchill um, for the Spitfire and um, for ordering into production uh, the Hurricane. This is absolutely in the hands of Neville Chamberlain. So I'm one of those people who believes that without the additional um, hurricanes and bringing in the Spitfire, there would have been no success for that tip of the spear, RAF Fighter Command. And then we must, of course, talk about the then Air Commodore Keith Park. Sasso to the Commander-in-Chief at Fighter Command, it was his work that was so important in creating uh, the, uh, the foundation um, for uh, the Battle of Britain. So without the 1930s, there would have been no 1940 in my view. We would have been as bad as France. So in the Battle of France, there was no integrated air defense system. There was very little radio control. Most French generals did not believe in having radio communications. They believed in messengers and standing air patrols. So the ground was covered by people on horseback and in the air, you'd go out and, and create a squadron level standing air patrol. And if it just so happened the enemy came along when you were returning to base to, uh, to refuel, well, so be it. And that posed us with a real problem because fighter command in 1940, by the 10th of May when France was invaded, actually had started to practice and most of the fighter squadrons understood integrated air defense system. So the first action um, which gave us that integrated air defense system, a good uh, testing, was the Battle of Barking Creek on the 6th of September 1939. And of course, the first casualties were two hurricanes shot down by Spitfires of 90, number seven, uh, 74 squadron. And that was because we hadn't yet worked out the way to use radar. Radar was operational, but it gave you a backscatter as well as a forward look. So when returning hurricanes who'd misidentified or been sent off to identify a rogue aircraft started to return um, to London, controllers thought this was an incoming raid and scrambled more aircraft. It was a whole morass. But rather like Dieppe helped uh, identify and to inform uh, for D-Day, the same way Barking Creek helped to identify for the Battle of Britain. But going back to the Battle of France, if you just look at these loss figures, you can see how badly off we were. But also just note that third line. The Luftwaffe had lost 367 fighters in the Battle of France. Now, we'd lost a large number of hurricanes, only 76 in air combat, the rest either unserviceable shot up on airfields or left behind when uh, the British Expeditionary Force had to retreat from France. Look at the number of Spitfires uh, that were lost, 24. That includes three PR aircraft that were, were left in France. 
Spitfires didn't operate in France um, during that uh, at that time of the Battle of uh, of France, but they were going across the Channel, leaning over um, into France, and that was a real issue for uh, for us there. But look at the French casualties: 574 aircraft destroyed, mainly on the ground, but also in air combat. So we learned the lessons from that. The Battle of France is part of the Battle of Britain. The first Spitfire combat um, is in number 66 squadron on the 13th of May, um, as far out as the Hague. Um, so this was right at the extreme range of Spitfires flying from Essex. Um, it was a, a combat, but it didn't result in anything other than some machine gun fire um, uh, being exchanged with German fighters. It wasn't until much, much later that we found uh, the Spitfire being in action. And that first combat was actually over France. It's a famous story of number 50, uh, 54 squadron uh, on the 23rd of May at 1940 in the area around the airfield of Calais-Marc. Um, it's the first time that we read really in history of that flying officer, Eldia, um, whose autobiography, Nine Lives, is a must read if you're interested in this period. And also flying officer Johnny Allen, um, another one of those brilliant young men who had joined the Royal Air Force um, as a professional pilot in the 1930s and was in fighter command. Uh, by the time he'd got to 54 Squadron, he was highly experienced. The story of this first combat, of course, is legendary. It's not necessarily a secret, but it's something that people don't really know about. This is the time of the Dunkirk evacuation, and to my mind, also part of the Battle of Britain. This is one we were able to test uh, sections and flights and squadrons and massed squadrons of aircraft to be effective in air defense. This operation is the result of number 74 squadron's boss being shot down, parachuting out of his aircraft, landing on the ground at uh, uh, Calais, already behind enemy lines, and being spotted um, by uh, Johnny Allen, uh, who returned to uh, Manston. And he, along with uh, Eldia and a couple of other pilots, uh, managed to take um, a Miles Magister uh, twin engine training aircraft, um, with, with uh, just one pilot uh, in it. Um, they flew top cover in the Spitfires. They landed at Calais Mark, picked up um, 74 Squadron's boss um, and flew him back to UK. In the meantime, jumped on by BF-109's Messerschmitts uh, and the first air battle uh, comes about. And the German intelligence reports are really quite damning of the 109 compared to the Spitfire. They suddenly realize that the Spitfire and the professional pilots of the Royal Air Force are going to be more than they expected. There were more to be reckoned with than, say, the French or the Dutch or the Belgians. So this is an important part, in my mind, of the build-up uh, to the Battle of Britain. You've then got a really re remarkable time of the first night combat success of the Spitfire. Again, before the official start of the Battle of Britain. Um, and this is Sailor Milan uh, of number 74 squadron, um, one of the greater 
um, tactical leaders of both the Battle of Britain and later in the Second World War, a man um, of amazing character, a man who uh, I suppose was ahead of his time, a South African, uh, not in the slightest bit impressed with apartheid, went back after the war and did what he could um, to bring about um, today's multi, uh, multinational, multi-ethnic rather um, country of South Africa. But at the time, 18th and 19th of June, um, he decided that he would be available should there be a night scramble. He got airborne. In the moonlight, he was lucky enough to see a German bomber identify it as such and shoot it down. In fact, he shot down two, which makes him the first person to get achieve a night kill um, in a Spitfire uh, during uh, the, uh, uh, the Second World War. Again, this is June. This is before the convoy, but convoy battles. This is when um, France has capitulated um, and everyone is back uh, in the United Kingdom waiting for the inevitable. To me, this is still part of the Battle of Britain. Now let's start to look at some of the real secrets. Step in the boffins. Um, you can see those of you who know the crest of the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough, um, that this is the time of Britain's leadership in aeronautics. This is the time when Farnborough was developing amazing things. Um, it, the Meredith system, for example, for air intakes, giving um, uh, aircraft less drag as a result of having coolant uh, systems in, under the wings. Um, it allowed, for example, the P-51 Mustang to have better performance because of the work done at the Royal Aeronautical, uh, the Royal Aircraft Establishment. Of those boffins, as far as I'm aware, there's only one uh, left alive. And I've been speaking to him. He's 100 years old. He was 100 years old in March. He still remembers clearly uh, this period. And the reason that I wanted to talk to him was to find out what were the secrets that they were doing? What were they doing at Farnborough that made us uh, uh, giving us the winning edge? And of course, there are a whole range of them, which I'll start to go through now. So, you know, without the boffins, we wouldn't have been successful on the Battle of Britain. I have a thesis that it's of much more than just a fighter command victory. It's a national victory. This is about the country pulling together. The baker in the village shop supplying uh, the pilots with their bread or the telephone engineer restringing the telephone lines from Bentley Priory to Uxbridge uh, that may have been blasted down by a bomb are just as important in the whole picture as everybody else. We tend to think of the pilots, the 2,500 odd pilots from many nations that were involved, but there's the ground crew, there are fighter directors, there is everybody who's involved, the whole nation. So fighter command, by the time we get to the 10th of July, 1940, is providing the tip of the spear. But without people like the boffins, without people just going about doing their ordinary job, but pulling in the same direction, we would not have won the Battle of Britain. And we did win it. Those historians who say, copying Hermann Goering, perhaps, 
that it was a draw don't understand the effect it had on the Luftwaffe. So as a direct result of Barking Creek and the misidentification of hurricanes by Spitfires, we have something called Pipsqueak, identification friend or foe, a small device fitted to the aircraft which gave a, uh, an IFF uh, secondary radar transmission that could be picked up uh, by the home chain uh, radar system. So chain home, um, you will remember in the Battle of Britain, there's that beautiful line um, of that rather well-spoken wife who's saying, um, yes, Danmore, I confirm, no IFF. Well, that was basically identifying uh, incoming aircraft as being a raid. And there's this, uh, in order to keep the secret, not only were the, was the IFF equipment uh, in the aircraft fitted with a small detonator to blow it up, uh, but also it was kept quiet um, when you came to flying. So in veiled speech, once you got airborne, you know, um, hello cowslip, this is uh, Rabbit Squadron Airborne, uh, what you didn't hear in the Battle of Britain movie, but what you would have heard is, is your cockerel crowing? In other words, have you turned on your IFF? The leading aircraft turns on its IFF and then the radar system uh, is able to identify uh, the aircraft is being friendly. And this is so important. This gives us an edge. This means that we have fewer aircraft, uh, but we actually uh, are able to use them better. We're able to deploy them better in an integrated uh, air defense system. And that's all down um, uh, to Watson Watts, um, uh, who, besides working um, uh, on radar, works on IFF as well, a system we still have today. Um, this gave us an edge. This was something the Germans didn't have and didn't understand. And what about the fuel? Well, pilot officer Rob Banks, who'd flown in the, uh, uh, in the First World War, um, actually um, was a, a fuels engineer. Uh, he was uh, a man at, uh, at the Royal Aircraft Establishment. And my boffin interlocutor at, uh, at Farnborough um, will, will tell you that 100 octane fuel wasn't so much fuel as an explosive. Um, they were very worried about it because at the time uh, they had been using um, 87 octane fuel as the standard. It's what the Luftwaffe used, it's what uh, the aircraft were using. Well, 100 octane, 100 uh, LL fuel, light, uh, light lead fuel, gave us an edge. It was a secret success um, to the Battle of Britain. Without it, um, we probably um, would not have been able to get the fighters um, to go up and, and to go faster. And this was important because it was all about getting height. It was all about getting above the enemy. The Spitfire being having less drag um, was able to get up um, in 15 minutes uh, to more than 15,000 feet. The poor old Hurricane uh, getting up to about 10,000 feet. But we'll come back to that uh, in a moment. The other thing, of course, that we have to um, to look at here um, is the famous Michelin's orifice. Um, this is when the Skinner Union's SU Carbretta, hey, lots of us grew up with cars with, uh, my Ford Anglia had SU um, Carbrettas in the, in the 1970s. Um, Beatrice Schilling was one of those early women engineers. Uh, she would have been the fastest uh, woman 
uh, had she got up slightly earlier in the morning and she was beaten to being the fastest woman or the woman, the first woman to go past uh, 100 miles an hour on that bicycle you see there in that picture that she had built herself. The motorbike isn't just what she constructed, the engine is as well. Um, what a phenomenal team she had. And she worked at the Royal Aircraft Establishment and creating the restrictor. Um, basically, it's a small washer that goes um, into the carburetor onto the float which stops the carburetor either uh, reaching out or um, getting um, having too much lean, uh, too much air, so it becomes lean. And you see that even today, the early Mark um, Merlin engines, um, there's this this puff of black smoke as as the uh, as the engine goes uh, to too rich um, in certain manoeuvres. Now she and her team in the winter um, of uh, of 1940, from the end of the Battle of Britain through into 1941, went to every station and replaced every single uh, carburetor uh, with or modified them with this restrictor. Um, what a shock that must have been in a day when women weren't supposed to be uh, engineers. Um, without her, um, we would perhaps have not got the successes at the end of the Battle of Britain. And it was people like her who were so important. Um, what about um, uh, getting up uh, into, uh, into speed? Well, what about um, the increased climb rate um, that we were able to get by having constant speed propellers. To me, this is another, another secret. This is learned in the Battle of France uh, that fixed pitch propellers weren't going to work. Um, and it's a test, I think a testament to the skill of Rotel, which was created by Rolls-Royce um, down at Cheltenham and by de Havilland at Hatfield, that they were able to create are these high-speed propellers and the propeller boss in particular. So ordered on the 9th of June, air tested on the 16th of June, and by the 31st of July, every single Spitfire was modified, followed by every single Hurricane. And for the Spitfire, this gave them an extra 730 feet a minute in the climb. This is so important. This is a secret to success in the Battle of Britain. And I would I would urge you to think on that this is, we're talking here of a six week flash to bang time um, for an urgent operational requirement. Um, something that um, planners today can only dream of, I would suggest. And you might say, well, it's simpler, but actually I think it's really um, rather, uh, rather effective. Another um, secret, I think, of, of the Battle of Britain was the way in which we pitched the people. We used the people to galvanize uh, a public opinion. We used um, people like Eric Locke, sawn off Locke as he was called, because he was actually five foot five, uh, one inch shorter than he should have been allowed uh, to have joined uh, the Royal Air Force. But of course, he fitted perfectly into that small cockpit um, of the Spitfire. I flew with number 41 squadron at Hornchurch, um, and his, he was very new um, into the, uh, the game of, of being a fighter pilot. By the end of the Battle of Britain, he'd scored 21 confirmed kills. That makes him an ace four times over. Um, he didn't fly with that dog that's there, but he was a man who understood the importance of having, if you like, a prop when it comes to PR. 
So the Battle of Britain has another secret face, and that's of media and public relations. Eric Locke is also, and as an army officer, it pains me to say this, he was an officer who carried a comb to comb his hair. We army officers, of course, only carry hairbrushes and they're kept by our batmen. But it's really interesting that he is ace of aces in the Battle of Britain, but he's also a man who understands the corporate communications message, another important part in my mind um, of the Battle of Britain. This famous line, it comes from the Battle of Britain, hurricanes take the bombers, spitfires take the fighters. And there are two things that come out of this, which I think people don't understand. One is armament and the other is climbing power. Now, we've heard um, from the BBC documentary series uh, or a documentary that's been aired um, on the 10th, 11th and 12th of, of July about a young 13-year-old girl, um, Hilary Hill, who was able to do the calculus required at the age of 13 to help her father, um, uh, a senior civil servant in the uh, uh, air ministry, um, to work out the cubic capacity and, and, and the like of the wings of Spitfires and Hurricanes so they could fit more guns in. In 1934, um, we were looking for new fighters. At the time, we were happy enough as a country to think that, well, actually two machine guns would do it. That's what worked in the First World War. Bet that will happen again. Somebody had the radical idea of making that four. But there were people, Hugh Dowding being one of them, uh, Air Marshal Freeman being another, who said, actually, we need the, the greatest amount of hitting power we can get. The secret of success is in the fact that eight machine guns that are brought together at, 600, at 250 yards gives you a huge punch of metal. Yes, it would have been better to have had cannon, but we weren't there yet. It took another six months to get proper working cannon in the Spitfire. However, having the Hurricanes going after the bombers was good because the aircraft was a stable gun platform and because of the positioning of the guns in the wings. They were grouped four together in each wing, which gave them a better hitting power. The Spitfire, with its spaced out guns, had a more spread out um, hitting power. And do remember um, that we're only talking about 14.7 seconds of ammunition for eight guns, not 42 seconds, as you might have seen in a, a recent movie um, with uh, a Spitfire, which also seems to be able to glide for at least five minutes um, without fuel. This is an important time um, that pilots learned how to make the most, a two or three second burst of machine gun power. What we found with the Hurricane, it was better at dealing with the armor on German bombers uh, than the Spitfire, and the Spitfire was better at dealing with fighters. And there's a lot of really good um, information that the Air Warfare Center has put together, and uh, um, it's gives you some really good empirical data about turn rates and fire, hitting power and climbing power of aircraft. It's not enough time to go through that data now, but it's something I think that uh, is really worth seeing and perhaps we might have um, some debate on that uh, later uh, in the year as we are in this 80th year, uh, this 80th anniversary year 
uh, of the Battle of Britain. So yes, Hurricanes did take the bombers. They took the bombers whenever they could because they had um, a greater hitting power, but also because the bombers were between 10 and 12,000 feet, and that's where the hurricane could reach in 15 minutes. That, that uh, combat climb out of Biggin Hill, for example, getting them over Canterbury in 15 minutes to 12,000 feet, whereas the Spitfires that were based there or at Kenley or Hornchurch uh, could be up over the Maidstone Canterbury patrol line at 15,000 feet where the escort was to keep the escort off the hurricanes while they dealt with the bombers. It's, it's not a rule of thumb, uh, but it, it tended to be uh, what actually happened. So what was the real risk um, in, in the Battle of Britain? Where was, where was the secret problem that we had? It wasn't the delivery of aircraft, or Beaverbrook had made sure of that, cutting through red tape, getting aircraft there, the civilian repair unit at Cowley, getting aircraft back into the air again. No, it was these chaps. It was the pilots. Um, we had a good system being developed, not just with the regulars, but also the volunteer reserve and also the Royal Auxiliary Air Force, uh, those county squadrons who became so successful in the Battle of Britain. Here at Middle Wallop, our own 609 squadron, for example, West Riding, first squadron to get to 100 kills, um, mainly um, both officers and senior NCOs um, coming from the farming communities of, of the West Riding of Yorkshire. Um, they worked together uh, before the war, they worked together well during the war. So it was the pilots, but we were short of pilots. If anything was going to stop us from winning, and I would say we were always going to win the Battle of Britain because we'd planned for it, we had the integrated air defence system, we had the technologies from Farnborough, we had all of that uh, put together, and we were always going to, to win. So what do we have to do? Well, this is a bit of a secret in my view. The fleet air arm contribution, the 56 pilots and two fighter squadrons, which were part of the Battle of Britain. For 20 years, um, it was almost denied by the air ministry that there were such um, uh, naval uh, personnel flying. Um, and the Admiralty chose not to, um, uh, to mention it either because they were far more interested in, in fighting uh, uh, for, uh, for battleships still, I think, after the war. But 56 pilots, including um, uh, in the cover of the book there on that, Dickie Cork, who was Barda's wingman, um, who Barda described as an exceptional fighter pilot, uh, and in a combat report said um, he felt that Dickie Cork, considering that he was uh, new to, uh, to the hurricane, was an amazing fighter pilot, and he wished he could promote him immediately to a flight commander. Uh, the other uh, person there is Arthur Blake. Uh, of course, because he is a lieutenant in the Royal Navy, um, uh, number 19 squadron at Duxford, with whom he flew, uh, decided he needed to be called Admiral Blake. Um, so he was known as the Admiral. Um, sadly, uh, he didn't live to see the end of the Battle of Britain. Uh, he was one of the nine naval pilots who gave their lives either flying um, with Hurricane or with Spitfire squadrons um, across 10, 11, and 12 groups um, of RAF Fighter Command. The two fighter squadrons, um, they were based uh, up in the north, and, and they were busy flying naval fighter aircraft uh, that had been disembarked from aircraft carriers because, quite frankly, we'd started to lose aircraft carriers and there weren't the, the decks for them. Uh, the Sea Gladiator um, in this picture 
famous, of course, in the defense of Malta um, a year later. Uh, it was the same sea gladiators from HMS Glorious, which had been sunk in the Norway campaign just before uh, the Battle of Britain, uh, defending Scarpa Flow. Um, and coming in at the end, the American martlet that we'd taken um, wildcats that were being going to be delivered to the French and impressed them into naval service. And in the background photograph there, uh, the Fulmar, um, an airplane with the Merlin engine looks not dissimilar to a rather stretched hurricane, but of course it has a crew of two because it needs an observer radio operator in a naval aircraft that's going to operate from carriers over water out of range of land. I think this is important to look at in the Battle of Britain because it shows you exactly what's going on today um, with carrier strike um, and with 617 Squadron being commanded by a naval officer, even though it's Royal Air Force Squadron. 809 Squadron will stand up soon uh, with the F-35, initially commanded by um, a naval officer, but then it will be commanded by an Air Force officer. This working together now um, actually isn't new for neither the Royal Air Force nor the Royal Navy. They did it in the Battle of Britain. And the secret to it was at the right uh, rank, you admire the professionalism of the other. So now we've got to the stage. And if you want, of course, an endorsement for your book, I do recommend uh, that you have um, somebody uh, like uh, Winston Churchill read the book and uh, do the review uh, for you. Um, so. My book on the Spitfire has a lot of what I've been talking about there. It's not just, of course, about the Battle of Britain. So I've been talking for the last 40 minutes about things which I think are secret, not in the sense that they're official secrets or they're top secret, but things which I believe are uh, important for us to know about the Battle of Britain as we spend the next four months looking at the Battle of Britain and looking at where uh, it stands in our national story. I'm so sorry to see that the Times newspaper again is reporting that the youth of today, young people, are not taught about the Battle of Britain. Some 40% of those questions thought it was a battle during the English Civil War 400 years ago. But with that, back to Peter up for the Q&A, and I'll be happy to try and answer any of your questions or take your criticism. Right, thank you very, I am indeed. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, we do indeed have some questions coming through. Um, firstly, uh, you mentioned IFF, which um, I believe is identification, friend or foe. Um, somebody has asked, is that the um, first example of what we now call a transponder? Yes, um, uh, I believe it is. It's the first time that um, uh, aircraft were fitted with an, uh, um, an automatic electrical system um, that could be interrogated or could um, uh, actually give a pulse out every 15 seconds, 30 seconds um, to identify it. So we're talking of today um, uh, of uh, the squawk box. If you fly private aircraft, for example, um, you, you can set your squawk to come up on secondary radar return. Um, this is exactly uh, what we're talking about. This is an early development. It comes directly out of the work done on radio, uh, what was called at the time radio direction finding, RDF. We didn't call it radar um, and, until about the end of 1940. Um, but this is, this is trying to identify 
aircraft as friendly to stop that blue on blue situation um, that Barking Creek uh, was part of. Um, in the air, in the heat of battle, even trained Spitfire pilots at the time couldn't identify hurricanes, uh, even though they were based at the same airfield. Um, and it's quite a remarkable, um, uh, I think, example of what happens in the heat of battle. But yes, IFF, Pipsqueak, um, is very much about transponders. And of course, we were able to use it throughout the war. The Germans, it took them some time to develop it. It wasn't until they captured an intact aircraft and got that and back-engineered it. Thanks for that. Um, somebody has asked, you know, what is your, in your view, what's the one particular um, piece of technology that made the most difference in the battle? I think I would probably say um, that it's the enhancing of the fuel from 87 to 100 octane. And uh, you're probably aware later in the war, we even managed to get it up to 150 octane um, uh, in a separate tank for high level interceptions. Um, this is all about um, uh, making the aspirating engine work better. It gives you better carburation, better ignition, better um, uh, better performance. Um, I think uh, that having that um, for the Spitfires and Hurricanes negated some of the issues they had um, in performance against the BF-109, particularly the E-4 variant, which came in um, at the end of the battle written in September 1940, giving them a better climb rate um, and being able to outclimb the 109, uh, but it also gave them the ability to gain height quickly and to be able to push up that 15-minute combat climb um, from, from uh, 15,000 feet to 16,000 or 17,000 feet, which gives you that advantage of height. Um, uh, others would say that um, perhaps it was pipsqueak, it was IFF that was the advantage, or the constant speed propeller enabling you to go from, um, uh, or the propeller to, to, um, to go constant fine as it required to do, you didn't have to set it yourself, or as in the beginning of the Battle of France, where there were wooden fixed um, propellers. All of those things, um, I think, uh, came along. And the other thing that started to come along, which I didn't mention, was the way in which we changed the canopies on the fighter, on the Spitfire fighter in particular, um, into a blown canopy um, at the side. So you could see round behind you. The hurricane, I'm afraid, was left with that latticework uh, hurricane for the whole of its career uh, in the Royal Air Force. But um, there are a number of pieces of technology. It's worth, um, it's, it's very much, of course, a subject that Royal Aeronautical Society is interested in. It's where does that sort of history of uh, that technology, where can, what lessons can we learn from 80 years ago that we might apply today in generic terms about technology? What, what how do we speed up? technological development. And I've got two related questions, Paul. Firstly, could you say something about foreign air crew um, serving with the RAF? And were, in your opinion, could the um, Polish squadrons have been committed earlier? Oh, this, is, this is the perennial one. Can I deal with the Polish squadrons first? Um, uh, Polish squadrons, 303 squadron in particular, um, was able to 
um, to have the highest kill rate for uh, any squadron. And, and ironically, because it had Czechs uh, in the squadron, and they were some of the best trained pilots. They had, uh, they were older, uh, they were more mature, and they'd had combat experience, not just um, fighting in Poland, but also fighting in France. Um, so um, yes, the Poles um, stand up on the 1st of August 1940. Could they have done been there earlier? It's a difficult one, um, Peter, because one of the problems was the language problem. And although they were trained fighter pilots, they were it was a matter of fitting into the system and to be able to use that integrated air defense system. There, there, there have been several movies uh, that have come out in the last two or three years, which have um, uh, tried to um, pour scorn on, uh, uh, on the officers of the Royal Air Force for not um, not using the poles and um, saying, you know, this this was a waste. Actually, I think there is there is merit in leaving the poles and formed units until August, um, but taking individual poles who joined what well, like 69 squadron, but what they had three poles um, by August who were flying with them. There weren't a large number of poles. Remember, uh, there were we're talking about I think it's 145. Um, in, in total, um, we're talking of, and I'm starting to go into the first part of the question, 127 Kiwis. There were more Kiwis flying. Um, uh, and if you think of the population of, um, of New Zealand at the time, there were more Kiwis than Australians, more Kiwis than the French, there were more Belgians than the French. I think one of the things that I find staggering is that over 100 thousand French service personnel, army, navy, and air force were evacuated from Dunkirk, and yet only 600 elected to stay in Britain and fight. Um, and there were very few air force personnel who were uh, elected to come over and, uh, and, and fight. A lot of them um, flew their own aircraft across uh, and joined squadrons, and eventually, of course, the the Royal Air Force was able to form squadron site 341 Lorraine, um, which was a free French squadron or a fighting French squadron. Um, so there were other nations. If you look at the figures, um, there was uh, people born in uh, Jamaica, Barbados. Um, there were people from Southern Rhodesia, uh, now Zimbabwe, um, South Africans. There were um, a handful of Americans, nine of them, including, of course, Billy Fisk, the first American to die. Um, uh, in the Battle of Britain with 601 Squadron, RAF Tangmere, um, uh, a great American, um, uh, had been to Cambridge, was a double gold medalist in Winter Olympics on the bobsleigh. What an amazing character, holds the record for, for driving from White's Club to RAF Bentwaters in 15 minutes in his uh, four and a half litre Bentley. I must have been days when there are no cars on the road. Um, uh, and yes, there were Americans, there were Canadians. Um, uh, so it, it's very much Commonwealth um, uh, and it's it's white Commonwealth. I mean, these are from people from the Dominions um, that were there. The Jamaican and the uh, Barbudan were, were both um, old uh, white families from, from those, those countries. And of course, the other thing we should remember is although it's less than 20 years since Ireland became an independent nation. We still had lots of Irish people. There was people like Victor Beamish, who was a station commander in the Battle of Britain, a true Kerry man. Um, and yet um, he 
um, uh, had uh, elected to join the Royal Air Force and stay. Um, and we owe the Irish a lot, um, uh, as we do today. The Irish Guards still recruit from the Republic of Ireland. Uh, the bond between Ireland and Britain was strong in 1940 and as strong as it, uh, as it is today. Um, so it's always wrong to say Britain stood alone um, in, uh, in the Battle of Britain. Um, it stood alone in, in one way, in that it was the British system. And these all these pilots were wearing Royal Air Force uniforms or Royal Naval uniforms. Um, and there were people in anti-aircraft command and bomber and um, balloon command, of course. And can I just put a shout out here for bomber command? They lost more people in the Battle of Britain than fighter command because they were operating uh, daylight and nighttime operations. They lost 736 aircrew. And they were keeping the German uh, fighter pilots and bomber pilots awake at night by harassing raids on the airfields in the Low Countries in France, and they were attacking the invasion barges. So this is why I say the Battle of Britain is all about a national effort. Thank you, Paul. Just briefly to go back to Billy Fisk, um, the cliche about the Battle of Britain is new pilots turning up on the squadron, and how many hours do you have? on Spitfires, oh eight, sir. Um, Billy Fisk's logbook shows that the first time he flew a hurricane was when he joined 601. Correct. Which is remarkable. Uh, um, it, was, uh, it was under the 12th or the 13th of July. I, I can't remember. I'm, I'm uh, on the group captain of the 601 squadron, so um, I should know this. Um, in fact, we've just commissioned a painting which has been completed by Philip West, which will go into the Royal Air Force Club as soon as uh, we're able to get a date of uh, sort of lockdown and all of those things, um, which shows him and Max Aitken, the son of Lord Beaverbrook um, and the, then the second Lord Beaverbrook and son and father of the current uh, Lord Beaverbrook, who just retired as an Air Vice Marshal, um, shows them on patrol um, over the south coast. And Billy Fisk, um, sadly, lasted only, what, five weeks, I think, in, in air combat, but um, did score um, and did save his hurricane, um, even though it was on fire um, and crashed under at Tangmere, um, sacrificing his own life um, uh, in doing so. Uh, uh, and, of course, had a, a, a state funeral, in effect, at Boxgrove uh, Priory. And uh, there's... It's an, it's an, it is an incredible story of, of Billy Fisk, and it does demonstrate um, how desperate we were for pilots, that the, his first, um, his theatre for mill, his conversion to the hurricane was, was a war f flight. It was a morning uh, patrol, a dawn patrol, um, a standing uh, uh, patrol over Chichester and uh, Tangmere Airfield. Okay, I think we've got time just for two more. Um, we've talked about the, the Dowding and Park system, and um, it's there was a system in the First World War for tracking airships and gothers and, and such like, uh, put together by um, General Ashmore. Um, can you say much about the difference, with the obvious exception of radar, um, the differences between the park, the Dowding system, and, and Ashmore. Yes, I, I think there are there are there are two um, uh, parts to this, which which I think are important. And the Ashmore system 
um, was um, integrated in the sense it used telephone lines and um, it used a, a recognized picture. But it didn't have the filter capability um, that had been installed um, as a result of the trials at uh, Northolt and was in trial at Bentley, and installed at Bentley Priory, which enabled the different reports to be to be filtered out so that only the right number of aircraft went to the right place. This is one of the problems with, with Barking Creek. Um, it really only needed um, uh, perhaps a Vic of three um, uh, Spitfires to uh, or, or Hurricanes to go and look at this unidentified aircraft on the 6th of September. It didn't require a whole squadron and then a backup squadron to be launched. So we learned a lot from that. That would have been the First World War way of doing it because of serviceability of aircraft or not being able to find them, not having um, being able to have the fighter directors uh, using um, radio to direct them. So we've got both um, VHF FM um, uh, radios, two-way communication. We've got automatic IFF. We've got the filter system. We've got radar. We've got the observer core. Uh, all of these function in the Dowding system and function well. And it's a very quick and clear-cut system. Um, information um, from radar to Stanmore, uh, Bentley Priory, um, Stanmore to the appropriate group headquarters, say 11 group at Uxbridge, and from there to the appropriate sector squadron uh, station, say Biggin Hill, and from there um, the, uh, the, the the controller knows what aircraft he's got available and launches appropriately. Um, and it's a, it's a well-tried system um, by July 1940, and it, and it works. And, and that's the key to it, is the fact that, that it functions. The First World War one didn't really function. And of course, it resulted in the Royal Flying Corps, uh, uh, and for that matter, the Royal Naval Air Service, but mainly the Royal Flying Corps, uh, becoming uh, the Royal Air Force, because it's about air defense of Great Britain. And as I said in the talk, it, that's what it's still about today. Okay, thank you, Paul. And I think finally, we're getting a bit short of time. Did Hugh Dowding get enough credit for his role in the battle? Yeah, it's an old, this is an old one, this actually. And, and, and um, this is all about personalities in the air ministry. Um, this is about, uh, Dowding of course was due to retire before the Battle of Britain and was kept on. Um, mainly he wanted to stay there to see his system work. Um, his main fault was not preparing for the night defence of Britain, but concentrating on the daylight um, defence, which was probably strategically the right thing to do, but tactically um, or in terms of public relations, um, the blitz, uh, the night blitz, which started in September 1940, um, um, I would generally take the 8th of September to be the beginning of that, um, with the bombing of London. Um, that is uh, something which he neglected, so therefore, um, uh, his detractors, people um, like uh, Lee Mallory um, uh, and Sholto Douglas, uh, were prepared to, to put the knife in. And when he fell, so did Keith Park. But Keith Park showed himself um, to be an extraordinary leader and planner in the air defense of Malta, which was um, a small um, a small reconstruction of the Battle of Britain, really. Um, it was all about beleaguered place and, and limited number of aircraft and 
um, very difficult conditions. So I don't think either Dowding um, nor Park get credit. I'm really glad that, what, 10 years ago, we managed to put a statue to, to uh, Keith Park up in, uh, uh, in just outside the, the Athenaeum Club, actually, in, uh, in Pall Mall. I think that was important. Um, no, like all these things, um, uh, Dowding was a man of his time. He did um, get a baronetcy. Um, he did uh, become a lord. He did have all of these these things. Um, he should be uh, remembered as a national treasure, just as Park should be uh, remembered, just as we now know the names of uh, the fighter squadron leaders like Sailor Milan and David Darley and uh, and all of these. So. Um, we don't we don't treasure these individuals enough. It's not very it's not very uh, trendy uh, to credit these people with the great thing. Dowding and Park and Neville Chamberlain and Thomas Inskip, um, all of them are responsible for saving the country in the Battle of Britain. Right, thank you very much, Paul. Um, I'm afraid we are running out of time, so my apologies to those who. Uh, whose questions we've not been able to uh, look into. Um, as Paul said earlier and as repeated just now, when we think of the Battle of Britain, we quite rightly remember the aircrew who were in direct contact with the Luftwaffe, but they were supported by a wide range of men and women, both service personnel and civilians. Do we people still use the phrase backroom boys nowadays? Uh, without whose contribution, the fight would have been much harder and possibly lost. Paul's brought them into the light, limelight and they deserve that recognition. I've learned a few things this afternoon. I hadn't realised that Keith Park had worked with Dowding at Fighter Command pre-war. I always wondered what the SU in SU Carburettors stood for. And certainly before this afternoon, I hadn't heard of the young Miss Hill. Um, normally, if we were at Hamilton Place, I would invite you to show your appreciation for Paul with a round of applause, but that could be rather difficult. Um, I'm sure, though, he would uh, like me to mention that his books are available from all good booksellers. But... Um, Thank you all for joining us. We've had over 200 people in this webinar. Do look out for the link to the recording which will come out next week and we'll be very grateful for your feedback via the survey form which I think comes when you finish this, um, uh, when you log out of this. And I do hope that you'll be able to join us for further historical uh, webinars in the future. Thanks again and um, have a good weekend.